Well, at Scarlet City, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And in it, we've seen we're going through Jesus' life, the life of Christ, and then we're going to be coming back looking at the teachings of the kingdom. And this morning, we get to a pivotal, critical passage. In fact, what the whole book has been building toward, and that's the passion, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the crucifixion in ancient Rome was not merely a means of executing someone. There were other ways you could end a person's life. It wasn't simply a way of bringing judgment. The crucifixion in ancient Rome was a symbol. Uh, Someone was crucified in a public space. They Uh, were crucified in a way that brought shame on them and that communicated that Rome was in charge and to be feared. The crucifixion was a symbol of Roman power that instilled fear in the public. How does a symbol of human power, control, and fear become a symbol of God's love and grace and empowerment to bring healing to the world and others. This morning, we look at the crucifixion and the revolution that it brought to the world and the way it can bring revolution to our life. How we can move from living under fear, living under the control and power of sin and others to be liberated, to live in the grace and love of God. The crucifixion teaches us about the person and the purposes of Jesus. And as we enter in, you know, there's a temptation for many of us to see the cross as merely just a nice gesture and symbol in our life. We might have a necklace with a cross on it. We might have a cross hanging in our home. We might go to church and hear a preacher talk about the crucifixion and the cross. We might look up at the cross and think, oh, you know, Jesus did something. It was a good thing and nice. But we can miss the real power, the revolutionary power that it can bring in our life and call us to bring in our world. And so this morning, let's look how the cross moves from being a symbol of Brutality to being a symbol of love. The person and purposes of Jesus. And we're going to look at those two things. The revolutionary king and the revolutionary kingdom. Uh, First, the revolutionary king. Who Jesus is. What we learn about him through the passion. And for this, I just want to give a disclaimer. We're going to look at the whole passion narrative as a whole. And so we're going to be in chapters 26 and 27. And so I want to invite you to, if you have a Bible, open it. It might be a little easier to track with me. There's Bibles in your pews. And we begin looking at the revolutionary king. In the text that we read this morning, beginning in verse 27, we see the soldiers mocking Jesus as king. It reads, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him and stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, they led him away to crucify him. Now, these soldiers, they are, of course, mocking Jesus. And they look at Jesus and they think he's just some crazy lunatic. And they mock him for being king of the Jews. And of course, what Matthew is wanting the his reader to know, and what we, we know in reading the text, seeing the whole story, is that Jesus is not claiming to just be king of the Jews. He's claiming to be king of the world. And we see the irony that the king is mocked for being a king. And earlier, Pilate has this encounter, this dialogue with Jesus. And in Verse 11 of chapter 27, Pilate, the governor before Jesus, he asked them, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And so Pilate says to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Jesus, he gives no answer, not even to a single charge. And look, and so the, the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate is perplexed by Jesus. He's never seen anyone like this. And Pilate's dealt with kings. He's, he would have known Caesar. He would have known Herod, the regional king and leader. Pilate would have been well acquainted with men of power, of kings. And Jesus is like someone he's never encountered. In what way is Jesus a revolutionary king? Matthew, poetically, is bringing together in the Passion narrative some identities about Jesus that he's been building to the whole gospel. Let's look at a few of them. How is Jesus revolutionary? What do we learn about his person? The first way he's revolutionary is this. We learn that Jesus is the deliverer who's being delivered. He's the deliverer being delivered. There's an important verb in the passion narrative, and it's the Greek uh, verb parodidomai, which is translated to be delivered or handed over. It means to be handed over to, be, to experience judgment. And throughout the gospel, it's been hinting at this. For example, in Matthew 17, verse 22, it says, When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus has been saying, He's going to be handed over eventually. And then we see who hands Jesus over. And in uh, Matthew 26, 15, Judas says this. He says, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Je Judas delivers Jesus to be crucified. And then in 27, verse 2, we see the chief priests. They bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. We see the chief priests, the temple leadership, the religious leaders deliver Jesus to be crucified. And then in 27, verse 26, Pilate says, Pilate released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Judas, Roman authority, delivers Jesus. What, what, what does this mean? Matthew wants us to see everyone has a hand in Jesus' crucifixion. Judas, 
a friend, one of the disciples, the religious leaders, and Roman authority. That all of the power of the world, the evil of the world, is now pressed on Jesus. The deliverer is being delivered. We also, in what way is Jesus a revolutionary king? We see he is the judge who is being judged. The judge being judged. Jesus is put on trial. In chapter 26, verse 59, we, we see the recording of this trial. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. And then in verse 63, but Jesus remains silent. And the high priest Caiaphas says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus responds to him. He says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, here we have this trial. A trial was to be an event to uphold the law. And the opposite is taking place. A trial is held in darkness of night rather than the daylight. It's held in the secrecy of the high priest's home rather than the temple where it usually was held. It was held on the eve of Passover when it was not to be held. And also a trial was supposed to take days and here it takes a matter of hours. A trial was to be a place of justice and here we see injustice. They're fumbling around, trying to make stuff up, trying to find a way to crucify Jesus. And now we see the high priest's question to him. In his question, there's an implied statement. He's literally saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, his answer is absolutely shocking. It's absolutely shocking. Jesus says to him, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Everyone in this courtroom would have been floored by what Jesus said because in this statement, they would have known what Jesus was referring to. It would have been Daniel chapter 7, and the text will be on the screen, which reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the ancient of days that is God and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus responds and said, says, I am Son of man, I am the judge. I'm the one in authority here, Caiaphas. Now, if you ever get a chance to be in a courtroom, it's, a, it's an intimidating place. Again, it's to be a place of justice. And so you can't just act in a courtroom like you would in, say, a gas station. You can't act in a courtroom like you just would anywhere else. In fact, a few years ago in, in New York, there was a man who yawned in court and the judge gave, sentenced him to six years in prison. Because a courtroom is to not be a place. Or I'm sorry, six months in prison. Six years, that would have been 
A courtroom is not a place where you just flip it. You don't just yawn in a courtroom. You can't just stand up and start talking. And in this courtroom, Jesus responds and he says, you are not in charge. I'm the judge. We see Jesus as the judge being judged. And Caiaphas, <laughs> rightly upon hearing this, rips his robe and says, what more do we need to hear? Blasphemy. Jesus is the judge who was judged. How is Jesus a revolutionary king? We see that he is the righteous one who is crucified. Jesus is crucified so that the guilty can be freed. In verse 15 of chapter 27, Pilate, he wants to release Barabbas. It says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner, Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? Pilate thought the answer here would be obvious. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The righteous is crucified so that the guilty can be freed. Barabbas, a notorious criminal, is released. Now, there is so much irony here, but one of the things we're reminded of is that one of the charges against Jesus is that he was inciting the masses to start a revolution against the Roman Empire. And here the masses are crying for his crucifixion. Jesus alone is alone. He is not defended. Reminded here from Peter, 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus is a king like no other. We also see that Jesus is a king. He is the Savior who refuses to save himself. The Savior who refuses to save himself. In chapter 27, verse 39, as Jesus is on the cross, those passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And then we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They're mocking Jesus on the cross. He's the savior who refuses to save himself. Refuses to use his power. The restraint. I, I hear, I, I couldn't fathom, I couldn't fathom this restraint. If I'm Jesus right here, man, I'm going full Optimus Prime mode right now. And, and being able to justify it. They said if, if they see me come down, then they will believe. He doesn't have anything to prove to them. 
He knows who he is. He knows why he's here. A king like no other. And lastly, it's building all to this. How is Jesus a revolutionary king? He's the son of God, forsaken by God. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' final cry. And here, the idea is a shriek. A scream on the cross. His final words recorded by Matthew is a plea to God, why have you forsaken me? Now, scholars who read the Gospels, uh, even those who do not believe in the deity of Christ, who read the Gospels in any sense of miracle, many of his teachings they eliminate as not being original to Jesus. All scholars recognize this last statement as being credibly from Jesus. And they, they, they acknowledge that for two reasons. One, uh, Matthew and Mark, they preserve the Aramaic. Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. And here, this last statement is so etched in the mind of Matthew that he preserves the original statement. But also, the reason why Pretty much all scholars recognize this as credible is because no one would fabricate this as the last statement of their hero. There's a term that historians use, and it's called embarrassment. That if someone were to make this up, they wouldn't make up details that were an embarrassment to Jesus or an embarrassment to the disciples and followers. And of course, as we've read through the gospel, we see a number of embarrassment on the disciples. Why would they fabricate this if it put them in a bad light? But here we see the last words from Jesus. Who is like, they, like the people at the cross looking at him. Who is to be the son of God. And his last shriek is, why God have you forsaken me? Why? Jesus' last statement as well. We see he doesn't shriek out and say, my friends, my friends. Why? He doesn't say, my hands, my hands, my feet, my body. No, his last is my God, my God. Here we see the covenant. What Jesus is feeling in this moment is not the dread of physical pain. It's the dread of God's judgment coming upon him. It is why it goes dark. And darkness symbolizes the withdrawal of God's presence, and it goes dark not because God is judging Pilate or the chief priest or the soldiers or the crowd. It is going dark because God's judgment is bent on his son. This last cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A king like no other, a king like no other now, Let's answer Jesus' last shriek. Why? What is the purpose here? What is God hoping to accomplish? What does Jesus accomplish on the cross? Jesus was put on trial. And they ask him to defend himself and he's silent. Silent in the court of law. 
Because he's going to allow his work on the cross to be his message. He is literally the word of God. And here we see the word of God speaking louder than anywhere else. What is the message? What is the kingdom revolution that Jesus is wanting to bring? We see it right here. And friends, if I could, the whole Bible right here on the cross. Two critical points. Why? Why Jesus is forsaken. What he is bringing. The first point is this. Jesus is the substitute. Jesus experiences God's judgment in our place. He is delivered. He is judged. He is the righteous crucified so that the guilty can be freed. This is all happening at Passover. And Passover was a pivotal time for for the Jewish people. And at the Passover meal, people would gather and they would look back at the time when God passed over them through the blood of a lamb shed so that they could be freed, so that they could walk in victory. And there was a specific order, a liturgy to a Passover meal. The man presiding over the meal would have taken the bread. He would have broken it and said, this is the bread of affliction. Our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. In Matthew 26, Jesus presiding over a Passover meal, took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and said, take, eat, this is my body. My body will be afflicted so that you can walk free. And then he takes the cup and when he had given thanks to it, gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Here we see that Jesus is the Lamb of God. The one in whom we have faith in order to be forgiven for our Sins. We are in the story Barabbas. Freed through the sacrifice of Jesus. We see the substitution. The gospel. It looks at us square in the eye. And it says you are not good enough. You are not good enough. For a holy God. Now. How do we respond to that? That is offensive. It is. If you don't see the offense, then you don't really understand what God is saying here. No one is without sin. No one is good enough. What do we do with this? You know, some of us dealing with that shame, we're overcome by it. We overcome by the shame, overcome by our sin. Like Judas who sells Jesus out and then will end his life. We just can't deal with the shame that we feel. We suffer, overwhelmed with guilt. Others of us were angry. We're offended. We're not okay with this kind of message. Like Caiaphas, the high priest who tears his clothes. We look at this and we say, This is wrong. This is offensive to say that 
I'm worthy of judgment. You know, we don't like to be told we're not good enough. We don't like it when our children don't make a sports team. It's not right. We'll call the coach. We'll call the person in charge and say, my child's good enough. How, who are you to say? I don't like. It, it's offensive to our modern sensibilities that God would look at us and very clearly say, you are not good enough. Others of us, we want to barter. We, we want to barter with God. We, want, we look at the cross and we say, well, you know, maybe another sacrifice could be made. You know, one of the things that's fun about traveling overseas is there's bartering for goods. You get to enter into this fun situation where you're, you're bidding on something you want to buy. The only times we get this are like when you're buying a car. You're buying a car. You, hopefully, you know, just don't pay what the ticket says. You can try to barter with them. And it's funny when you're bartering for the car. You know, I remember the first time Megan and I did it. I thought that I walked away with a steal. We were buying an old used uh, Honda Accord, and, and I go in, and I'm like, you know, we'll give you this much. And they had us in a room, and then the guy goes outside. He's like, whoa, I need to talk to my boss. And I'm thinking in that moment, I look at Megan like, he's scared of me. You know, I, making him sweat here. He's needing to go talk to his boss. You know, he, he, he's dealt with other people, but I can barter, man. I, I'm going to talk him down. They might give it to us. And of course, he comes back, does this like five or six times. And he's like, you know, you can take the car home. And we're driving home like, yeah. You know, they let me walk out of there with the car. I read afterwards that I fell for every, every trick in their book. You know, I didn't, I didn't get a steal. I, I, they, this is what they do to make me feel like I have some sense of control in it. I paid exactly what they wanted and what they were expecting. You know, you can barter for a car. You can barter for goods. You can't barter with God. You can't barter with God. God says, if you want to enter my kingdom, this was the price that needed to be paid. It was his son. Where is your faith placed? How do you respond to this? Wallow in shame? Angry that God would even conceive of judgment or humbled, trusting in Jesus, sacrificing in your place. Where is your faith? The substitution is a critical component of understanding the cross, but also, and we often miss this, many. And the Protestant movement today often miss this, the victory that Jesus is accomplishing here, that Jesus establishes the kingdom through self-giving love. Not only is he delivered, not only is he a substitute dying in place, but Jesus delivers. Jesus brings freedom. He, he is liberating here. Again, the Passover. What was the Passover? It wasn't just a time when God passes over sin. It was a time when God brings liberation. When God establishes a kingdom. When God forms a people. When God brings judgment on Egypt. Freeing his people. The 
Passover was victory and deliverance. It is why one New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, puts it this way in his book, The Day the Revolution Began. He says, a new sort of power will be let loose upon the world and it will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. You cannot defeat the usual sort of power by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it is still force that wins. Rather, at the heart of the victory of God over all the powers of the world, there lies self-giving love, which in obedience to the ancient prophetic vocation will give its life as a ransom for many. We see God accomplish victory through the self-giving love of Jesus exemplified on the cross. So, how are we reflecting this self-giving love today? How is the revolution not just shaping our heart, but shaping our life? How is the revolution continuing today? You know, some of us, when we think of loving others, we're kind of like Pilate. We have nice gestures. Ultimately, Pilate was the one in authority. He had the ability to free Jesus. And yet he doesn't, he doesn't want to be held accountable. He washes his hands as if to say, this isn't on me. He was in the place of power, the place of privilege, and he could have used that. And he does a nice gesture. You know, many of us, we settle for nice gestures for loving others. We, we want to tell, we want the world to know that our intentions are good. If it was up to us, Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. I mean, sure, we had the power to do something about it, but you know. Jesus, though, he's not someone with just nice gestures. It wasn't enough for him to say, you know, world, God loves you. And I'm here to tell you. Jesus says, God's, God loves you. And I'm here to show you. He doesn't settle for nice gestures. How is God's love being reflected concretely in your life? If we were to look at your life, look at your bank account. Oh, oh. Look at your calendar. Look at your home. How would we see God's revolutionary love displayed? Friends, what we're talking about here is that the cross is not just a nice symbol we wear on a necklace or hang in a home or go to a church and hear someone talk about, but how is the cross Really, the power of God reshaping your life. How are you concretely living out this revolution? And the amazing thing, the amazing thing, you know, sometimes, I don't know about for you, but for me, I can look at Jesus and his, and his sacrifice and think, I'm overwhelmed. I, but where do I begin you know, our brothers and sisters in the faith, this was how the church began. It was a revolution. It transformed the Roman Empire. We only know, we, we read about Caesar and Pilate as a footnote in the story of Jesus. The Christians transformed the world. When people fled burning cities, Christians stayed. 
When people fled due to the plagues, Christians helped the sick. When children were abandoned by parents, Christians raised them. When society drew up divisions and classes among gender and people and other races, the Christians broke down those barriers, forming a new people. Christianity was the first expression of a new humanity rooted in the cross. This is our heritage. This is our legacy. How is it playing out in your life and my life? And as we close, it's tempting to walk away in that kind of charge to think, oh my goodness, what? You know, how can we do this? You know, we can feel fear and guilt and shame and just wallow in it. And then, and then we want to do some nice things. You know, pastor said something about my bank account. I need to, gosh, I, yeah, what would God think if he looked at it? And we can walk out and be motivated by guilt and fear a little bit. And, you know, that really isn't change. How can we be motivated to really live this way? Because this is revolutionary, friends. We're not talking about a few nice gestures. Growing up, uh, my mom, she would, she was some, she was, I love my mom, but she was sometimes annoying. She would actually get this, I know. Some, maybe some of your moms did this too. She would actually ask me to do chores around the house. I know, it was bad. You know, I needed to clean my room. She wouldn't just do it all for me. She wanted me to contribute. And growing up, I, I didn't naturally want to do this. I didn't want to help. I wanted, even as a child, I wanted to make everything about me. And, um, and she would uh, use certain things to motivate me. You know, like if you don't clean, you're going to be grounded. And so I would do it. Oh, you know, if you don't uh, clean, I'm going to withhold something. You're not going to get this. Okay, fine. And she would say every once in a while when she was fed up, she would say, you need to clean your room because I'm your mother. I'm like, okay, fine. You know what? And I did not understand why someone would say that until I saw Megan give birth. When I saw my wife give birth, I finally knew what my mom meant. And then raising a child and getting up at night and being exhausted and angry. And you know, when she said, you need to clean up because I'm your mother. What she's saying is, I have sacrificed for you. The least you can do is clean your room. And man, my mom passed away a few years ago. I would give anything to go back and just clean my room. When you look at the love of God exemplified on the cross for you. How can it not change you? What we need to see is not just the fear and guilt that God wants to bring. We need to see the love of God on the cross. That Jesus would die in our place so that guilty people like you and me can be freed and we can be empowered to join them in the revolution of self-giving love. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is a king like no other king. And your plan was a plan like no other plan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a holy God who made a way to you through your son. 
Thank you for the victory of the cross. That we are invited into a kingdom that will never end. And that we have the privilege of reflecting and showing that kingdom today. Lord, empower us by your spirit to join your story. In your son's name we pray, amen.